0: Here's a quiz question for you. Who was the first singer to win the Bel Canto competition in Florence, Italy in 1933? Any guesses? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.
1: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org.
0: The answer to our quiz was mezzo superstar Giulietta Simeonatto. From Simeonato to Shirley Verrett, the mezzo soprano is seconda donna to no one. But what about the secundo uomo? I'm Naomi Barratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we are thrilled to have Metropolitan Opera radio commentator and lecturer Ira Siff in the last of his three part series on magical mezzos as he explores the women and men who have left an indelible mark on the mezzo repertoire.
2: Welcome to Great Mezzos, Part 3. And this time we wrap up our look at the mezzo-soprano voice and all the amazing things it can do. Seconda donna to no one in many cases. And in some cases, as we are now firmly into the era of the countertenor, Secondo uomo to no one. In 2020, we cannot examine this register without a mention of the gentleman whose falsettoing has reached a level of excellence as to allow a revival of many of the Baroque operas in which their roles were taken by the castrati of legend. The castrati studied bel canto technique as probably no one before or since. Their virtuosic vocal agility and breath control was the result of years of arduous disciplined practice and an unceasing quest for perfection of emission and expression. The castrati were the rock stars of their day, and their careers rivaled and surpassed those of the great prima donnas. Of course, it was a barbaric practice, and those who were submitted to it only to find out that their vocal endowment was not enough to compensate for the loss of other endowments were relegated to choir work in church, if they were lucky. The Brits, of course, would never indulge in such a practice, but that didn't stop them from exploiting it to cast Handel's operas with uh, the most spectacular vocalists. And it's largely to the advent of the countertenor as we know it today, which is really a very skilled, pumped-up falsetto, that we owe the great Baroque opera revival of Handel and Vivaldi and others. When I began to sing in a male soprano register in public in 1981, there was no real career for countertenor, and so I formed La Gran Chena Opera, my travesty troupe of male divas, and I sang roles like Lucia, Tosca, Traviata in shows that were at the same time spoof, but also a tribute to the bygone days of colorful divas. If you're struck with curiosity, you can find about 30 excerpts of La Gran Chena on YouTube. Baroque operas with men singing the castrato roles was, well, it was around the corner, but it hadn't yet happened. Within a decade, it began, and by the mid-1990s, we were hearing names like David Daniels and Brian Asawa, and soon after, seeing them perform in opera houses like the Met. One can now go to YouTube and hear any number of countertenors with virtuoso coloratura ability. As a voice teacher in Amsterdam, where I also work, I train a few countertenors of different types. Those aspiring to early music will sing with less vibrato, a more compact sound, as is accepted style these days. In my less kind moments, I refer to that approach as pre-music. Those who want to sing the more heroic Handel or Vivaldi roles, or even early Rossini, must use a more full-bodied sound. The advent of the male performer in these male roles, which were previously either inhabited by mezzos in drag or transposed down an octave to the baritone or bass range, losing their vocal personality and agility that's owned by the head voice, it's also created an opportunity now for the drama of Handel's operas, previously wrongly viewed as staid and weak dramatically, to come forward as the clever, ironic, sophisticated pieces of music theater that they are. And the Mets' recent Agrippina would be an example. Now we're going to hear a heart stopping moment from Handel's Giulio Cesare, and it's a rarity one waits for in a Handel opera because of its rarity. It's a duet. Handel's operas were largely composed of Da Capo showpiece arias, one after another. As dazzling as they are, when there's a duet, it's often a sustained lyrical moment when everything comes to a halt and you can hear a pin drop, time really stops. One such moment is the duet for Cornelia and Sesto when they have been cruelly imprisoned by Ptolemyo, when Cornelia won't submit to him sexually. Sonata Lagrimar, I was born to weep, is the name of the duet. And we're going to hear in this recording two of the star mezzos One's a woman, one's a man. Stephanie Blythe and David Daniels as Cornelia and Sesto. John Nelson conducts. By the way, David Daniels made his Met debut as Sesto, but that role was composed by Handel, actually for Margarita Dorsanti, a soprano in Travesti, one of his favorite singers. So it was not a castrato role originally, and Daniels transposed him bit down a bit for his uh, debut at the Met. When he returned a decade later in that opera, he sang the much lower role of Giulio Cesare, the title role. Now, back to the world of what we used to think of as good old-fashioned opera with one of the great stars of the last century, Giulietta Simeonato, whose operatic career spanned from 1928 to 1966 when she quietly, and with no fuss, decided to retire. As a girl, Simeonato studied in a boarding school uh, with nuns who sensed her musical qualities and invited her to study singing which she did against the opposition of her family, especially her mother. After the latter's death, Giulietta studied first in Rovigo, then in Padua. Her singing debut was a 1927 musical comedy film entitled Nina, Don't Be Stupid. The following year, she made her operatic debut, and in 1933, she won the first Bel Canto uh, competition prize in Florence, against 385 competitors, and she got an audition for uh, Teatro alla Scala as a result. And the audition was positive, but the artistic director found her voice still immature and invited her to return a few years later. Now, the first 15 years of her career were frustrating, it seems, because she was not supported by the fascist regime at that time. She was only given minor roles, and her career struggled to take off. But by the late 40s, she'd attracted growing attention. In 1936, she had made her debut at La Scala and appeared there regularly between 36 and 66. And by that time, Simeonato was recognized as one of the most respected singers of her generation. She'd made her debut at the uh, Royal Opera House Covent Garden in 53. Simeonato made her United States opera debut also in '53, as Charlotte and Jules Massenet's Verter at the San Francisco Opera with Cesare Valetti in the title role. Must have been marvelous. In 1959, she made her debut at the Met as Atsucena in Il Trovatore with Carlo Brigonzi, Antonietta Stella, and Leonard Warren. Simeonato also appeared at the Edinburgh Festival, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, Vienna State Opera, Salzburg Festival. In '57. She sang Giovanna C. Moore in the famous revival of Anna Bolena with Maria Callas. Simeonato had a large repertory, including Rossini's Rosina and Cenerentola, Carmen. She also excelled in Verdi repertoire, like Amneris, Eboli, Azucena, and was a famous Santuzza in Cavalleria Rusticana. She was a major recording artist, and in addition, many of her performances gained live radio broadcast and were uh, captured on film in some cases, in fact, and uh, we're going to hear some of her stunning Amneris now from a 1961 performance in Tokyo opposite Mario de Monaco as Rodimus. This is the fourth act duet in which Amneris tries to convince Rodimus to save his life by renouncing Aida and marrying her, thereby escaping being buried alive for treason. He, of course, refuses, which is why we have this great duet. Simeonato, here at 51 and just a handful of years from retirement, pours out Amneris' vocal line with unerring power and an even scale, right up to thrilling, sustained B flats. Although the production was rather thrown together for an Italian tour to Japan, Simeonato's smoldering performance as Amneris certainly comes across. Delmonico, who could be a very committed actor and very big, muscular singer, sings marvelously, almost as well as he did uh, in the 1951 Radames we sampled in our first session. And in this case, Franco Capuana is conducting. So here's Giulietta Simeonato, great mezzo as Amneris.
1: I'm not sure if ran fa bravo di morire morir!
2: One of the Met's and the opera world's most versatile and compelling artists was Shirley Verrett. Verrett joins our mezzos, although like Christa Ludwig, uh, Grace Bumbry, other mezzos of of fame, Verrett was also a soprano off and on, tackling roles like Tosca, Lady Macbeth, Leonora and Fidelio, making one of the first colorblind casting breakthroughs as Desdemona and Otello. Verette was, in my opera-going experience, unsurpassed as eboli, matched only perhaps by Bianca Berini, who brought her refined artistry and italianità to the role. But Veret's Odan Fatale was peerless, something extraordinary, surely what Verdi had in mind when he wrote what is such a high roll but with plunges into chest voice. I first saw Verette in recital in 1964 and followed her career, sadly less than I should have, but fortunately I managed to see, in addition to Abelie, her Carmen, Azucena, La Favorita, and Tosca, Samson and Delilah, and Fricane on video, of course. One of her many supreme achievements was the Met premiere of Berlioz's Les Troyens, in which Verette, on short notice, sang both Cassandra in the first half and Didon in the second, when uh, Krista Ludwig was indisposed. To quote Alan Rich's review in New York Magazine, Shirley Verrett, who sings both Cassandra and, because of continued illness of Krista Ludwig, the Didon, has for herself a stunning triumph in both roles. She's glorious to behold, and her luscious, pliant voice is, at this moment, in prime estate. The range of mood she must encompass during the long evening, the flaming passion in the melodic lines Berlioz invented for both of his heroines. These are incredible challenges, and Verrett, <clears throat> excuse me, has met them in a way that has to rank as one of the great personal tours de force in the company's 90-year history. I had the pleasure of reviewing Verrett's autobiography for Opera News, and as one would expect, she encountered horrifying racism, particularly earlier in her career. And later, for an article, I spoke with her about balancing marriage with career. She was given carte blanche at La Scala any role she wanted to do, and she sacrificed that for her husband, the painter Lou Lamanico, who wanted to remain painting and teaching in the U.S. I felt that was something that haunted her for the rest of her life. One amusing twist in 2005, Shirley was to play the cameo role of the Duchess of Krakentorp in La Fille de Régiment at Michigan Opera Theater as she taught in Ann Arbor and was supportive of the company. Well, she became indisposed, and I was called in to replace her in the role in my drag persona of Madame Vera from La Grande Opera and that was an honor. Verrett always felt a debt to those who trailblazed before her and expressed the hope that she would represent someone who opened doors for the black artists to follow. We're going to hear Shirley Verrett as Princess Eboli in Verdi's Don Carlo singing O Dom Fatale, as Eboli curses her great beauty, not to mention her vanity, which has caused so much trouble to those near to her. So here's Veret in a live performance in 1971 at the Liceo in Barcelona, tearing fearlessly into this hugely challenging aria. Another mezzo who had some soprano facility but of a far more lyric variety is the elegant Frederica von Stade. Von Stade's career is so vast it would take three of these sessions just to cover that, the classical section of it and the pop music, the theater music, all the contemporary work by Ricky and Gordon and particularly Jay Kegge, Perhaps the most celebrated uh, aspect of Von Stade's artistry is her elegance as an interpreter of anything she touches. This artistic refinement is channeled through a beautiful voice with slightly plangent quality, adding a dynamic that is immediately vulnerable and touching. One of the roles she helped revive to popularity is Massenet's Cendrillon, in which this quality is employed throughout to great effect. Now, the third act of that opera begins with an extremely challenging aria, as Sandrion, Cinderella, returns from the ball, overwhelmed relating her experiences at the ball and her race with the clock to leave it and return home. Massanet supplies the singer with everything, but also asks everything of her. Lyrical outpouring, breathless breathless emotion, staccatos to high C's, even an optional high D, which at least on this recording, one takes. Cendrillon set the stage for subsequent high mezzos like Joyce Di Donato to assume this role, and von Stade set a standard difficult to equal, impossible to surpass. We're going to hear her in this aria now that opens Act Three of Massenet Cendrillon, and here she is conducted by Julius Rudel. One of the most colorful stage animals of the post-war era was Fedora Barbieri. Barbieri was born in Trieste in 1920. She began performing in opera in 1942. She gave her last performance on stage in 2000 as Mama Lucia in Cavalleria Rusticana. She had a huge voice and oodles of temperament, as well as a robust sense of humor on stage and off. Although not the sort of technician we've been encountering in these sessions along the lines of a Verret or Fontstada or Marilyn Horn, Eva Podlish, Barbieri made up for a certain lack in that area, especially in the highest notes, the mezzo range, by offering no-holds-barred emotional commitment and true Italian style. At the Met, Barbieri made her debut in Rudolf Bing's inaugural production of Don Carlo as Eboli in 1950, and she gave 96 performances of 11 roles in the house. She was a wild Azucena and Amneris, a spirited mistress quickly. As one reviewer said of her Atsuchena, quote, there were no dull moments when she was on stage, end quote. That appraisal is certainly borne out by this clip we're about to hear of Barbieri singing and living Azucena's horror as she describes to Manrico the accidental burning of her own baby son. Barbieri is so in the moment and willing to be so emotionally exposed as to somehow remove the absurdity of the plot of Trovatore by simply being as absurdly over the top as it is you might hear renditions with more opulence of tone or more attention to all of Verdi's detailed musical markings, but I doubt you'll find a truer, more honestly felt rendition. In this clip, Mario Del Monaco is Manrico, Fernando Previtali conducts, Fedora Barbieri is Azucena. The year was
3: 1957.
2: We're going to continue our study of mezzos with a remarkable artist and a remarkable scene. It's the death scene of the old prioress from Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites, performed by the great Regine Crespin. During her career, Crespin began as a soprano with a huge voice able to scale down to encompass floated pianissimo singing. As time went on, and the voice grew in amplitude and weight, the upper extension and soft singing above the lower middle voice became more difficult, and as Crespin always had a formidable low register and enjoyed her cigarettes, the switch to mezzo-soprano was inevitable. During her tenure at the Met, Crespin sang a variety of roles, some of her interpretations entering the realm of definitive, and these included her martial her Zyglinda, in which the opulence of her tone and the energy of her singing was rivaled in this role only by the sheer tornado of vocal and emotional power unleashed by Leonie Riesenich in the same part. When Crespin switched to shvishin roles, those inhabited by high mezzos and sopranos, her Kundry in Parsifal was extraordinary for its power, while her Charlotte in Werther and her Carmen were notable for their exactness of French style and elegance. In 129 Met appearances in 13 roles, her final Met assumption, uh, and it was fortunately videoed at that time for us to all see, but also broadcast for us to hear and to hear now on the radio, was uh, Madame Croissy in Dialogues of the Carmelites. It was 10 years after she first took it up when the production originated. This was 1987, with 30 performances in this role. It was her most performed Met role, actually, as it turned out. Crespin's Croissy was an unforgettable portrayal. And when the Met performed it in English rather than in French, Poulenc specified he had requested that, as it was dialogues, it be performed in the language of the country in which it was being staged, in a cast of otherwise all Americans, Crespin's diction was the clearest in the ensemble. And what a cast it was. Jessie Norman, Maria Ewing, Florence Quivar, and Crespin were all unforgettable. And we're going to hear her unforgettable, harrowing death scene in its entirety today. Certainly a fitting addition to this series of great mezzos, Regine Crespin, as Madame de Croissy in the death scene from Dialogues of the Carmelites, Manuel Rosenthal conducted, and this was John Dexter's irreplaceable production, Regine Crispin.
1: Mother Marie, my Reverend Mother, I saw our chapel ravaged and profaned and were deserted. It all but desolate. There was one blood on the bloodstones. Unless God has forsaken us, God has renounced us. Oh! <laughs>
2: Now for a little bonus of an artist I wager most of you don't know or know of, Zara Dolukhanova. The Armenian Dolukhanova made a brief operatic career beginning in 1939, and then she turned to concert and radio in Russia, carving a huge career there and bringing a number of Rossini mezzo roles to Russia for the first time, including Cherentola, Italiani in Algeri, Arsace in Semiramide, uh, sung in Russian. From that opera, um, she does a marvelous, admirable, uh, really startling, agility-filled Arsace, as she does in all her Rossini roles. And uh, it is worth looking her up to hear her in florid singing. Although her career spanned the 1940s to 1960s, it was a throwback to the time that Russian singers were more Italian-trained without the over-darkened sound, which became really the hallmark of the Russian school. So today, I thought, rather than pull out one of the uh, Rossini arias, I would uh, treat us to Dolo Khanava's recording of Odan Fatale, uh, because it's often interesting to compare great renditions of the same aria with two artists, Shirley Verrett and Dolohanava, and it's always fun to really to compare the the assets, the virtues, and the flaws, although in this case these two are almost flawless, of the artists. Here Dolohanava adapts a more full-bodied body tone than we hear when she sings Rossini for this Verdi aria of passion and self-loathing that Ebely feels about her beauty, her vanity, her don fatale, which has gotten her and everyone else into such terrible trouble. It's a very broad and majestic reading, and one thing I find hilarious is that not only is the high C flat that challenges most mezzos, no trouble for her, mind you, Verdi handled it very well, but at the end of the aria where everyone takes it at a clip, not just because maybe Verdi wrote it to speed up there, but just in order to survive the rigors vocally, Dolokhanova slows down to a crawl, and instead of the killer B flat that caps the end of the aria, she effortlessly interpolates a high C, just because she can. In my research on Dolokhanova, I discovered that she actually gave three recitals in New York, and two of them were during my opera-going years, and I can still feel the bruises from kicking myself for not knowing about her then. So now we're going to hear the sensational Zara Doluchanova singing O Don Fatale from Verdi's Don Carlo. Wraps up our survey of great mezzos. It really has been difficult to choose. It's really been an exercise in omission rather than inclusion. There are so many out there. Wonderful to hear. But this was the special flock that we got treated to. I hope you enjoyed it.
0: Many thanks to Metropolitan Opera Radio commentator and lecturer Ira Sith for discussing and sharing the exciting history and performances of mezzo-sopranos and countertenors of the past and present. For more information about the world of opera and to keep up with all things opera, you can follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera. Thank you for listening.